So let's get started for today. Years and years ago, um, I was framing houses and we were trying to impress uh, some new builders because it was actually kind of a family of builders. There was three different people in the family who built houses. And if you impressed one, you kind of got all three. So it was a really important project for us because we wanted to kind of lock down this entire family. Really, really wanted to make a good impression. And so we were excited when we got our first job kind of locked in um, with this family. And we took it very, very seriously. Uh, And it went well. And the people liked me. And so we actually were able to book our next two jobs with these, uh, with these, this family. And so we're on the third job, framing job, when they were kind of buttoning up all the details on the first house. And uh, when you're framing a new construction home, one of the last things you do as the framer is, is to set the front door uh, because usually they're nice and decorative and you don't want all the lumber being hauled in and out while you've got this really nice door in place. And so it was the last thing we did before we left this this first house is we set this nice big uh, door with two side lights, you know, great big thing. And when a door is that big, you know, you, uh, square and level is very important. And so I had this college kid working with me at the time uh, who seemed like he uh, was a pretty sharp kid and, and, uh, and had some construction background. And so I wanted to make sure the door was level and square. And so I worked the inside. I had him work the outside. And I've got the level on the hinges. I've got everything perfect. I've, I've, I've read my tape measure. All the things I didn't really trust this kid to do. And, and when I had the door perfect and shimmed and ready, I asked him to nail the brick mold of the house. I had given him 16-penny finish nails. He nails it to the house. I opened, shut the door. Everything's working perfectly, working smoothly. And so we move on. So when we're on our third house for this family, you can imagine my shock uh, when... On my Nextel phone, you guys, anybody remember Nextel when you used to push the button and talk like a walkie-talkie? So I get this walkie-talkie call on my Nextel phone that asked me if we could come back to the first house and please pick the front door up out of the front yard and put it back in place. And so we, uh, we go back to this house, and this house is sitting kind of on a hill where there's a huge, the winds were big and not very many cross or wind breaks. And, and apparently when they had opened the back sliding door, the wind blew through the house so hard that it blew the front door clear out of the house and, uh, and into the yard. And uh, when we got there and kind of inspected, it seemed that the kid that I had nail it in had hit one little piece of framing with a little bit of the nail. Everything else had missed everything, and I hadn't really checked it. So this door was just sitting in place, not even really uh, nailed in. And, uh, and we had set out to make a big impression on these builders, and man, was that a big impression. Um, to date, I've never heard of another framing company who had their front door get blown completely out of the house. And uh, over the past 25 years, I've uh, worked really hard to block this story completely out of my memory. But as I dove into this week's text from Nehemiah, I was uh, dragged back to those early days of framing, uh, because uh, even though the doors were the last things that we hung back in the day, uh, the gates of Jerusalem are the first thing that Nehemiah starts to put up. And, uh, and so as I was reading the story from this week, uh, this all came back to me, and I thought I would share one of my most embarrassing work moments. But um, let's read the text. This is a little bit long, but bear with me, because God saw fit to write this down, so I think we should see fit to read it together. Uh, And if I get the the names wrong, uh, give me grace because there's a lot of them. 
Then Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the Sheep Gate. They dedicated it and set up its doors, building the walls as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated. And the Tower of Hanel uh, and the Tower of Hanel, people from the town of Jericho worked next to them. And beyond them was Zechar, son of Imri. The Fish Gate was built by the sons of Hesena. They laid its beams and set up its doors and installed its bolts and bars. Merimoth, son of Uriah, and grandson of Hekaz, repaired the next section of wall. Beside him were Meshalem, son of Berechiah, and grandson of Meshabel, Meshezebel, Meshezebel. And then Zadok, son of Bena. Next, to, next were the people of Tekoa, though their leaders refused to work with the construction supervisors. The old city gate was repaired by Joadiah, Joadah, son of Pashia, and Meshalem, son of Besoadiah. They laid their beams, set up their doors, and installed as bolts and bars. Next to them, Melatiah and Gibeon, son of Maranoth, the people of Gibeon and the people of Mezpah, and the headquarters of the governors of the province west of Euphrates River. Next was Uzel, son of Heriah, the goldsmith by trade, also worked on the wall. Beyond him was Hananiah, a manufacturer of perfumes. They left out a section of Jerusalem as they built, as they built the broad wall. Rephaiah, son of Hur, the leader of half the district of Jerusalem, was next to them on the wall, next to Jediah, son of Haramuth, repaired the wall across from his own house. And next to him was Hatash, son of, I'm not even going to say that one. And came Malachiah, son of Harim, and Hashab, son of, I'm not going to say that one either, was repaired another section of the wall and the towers of the ovens. Shalem, son of Heloesh, and his daughters repaired the next section. He was a leader of the other half of the district of Jerusalem. The valley gate was repaired by the people of Zenoah, led by Hanum. They set up its doors and installed its bolts and bars. They also repaired the 1,500 feet of wall to the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Melachiah, son of Rechab, the leader of Beth Hecarim, the Beth Hecarim's district. He built it, he rebuilt it, set up its doors and installed its bolts and bars. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalem, son of Kolhosa the leader of Mespa district. He repaired it, roofed it, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. Then he repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam near the king's garden and rebuilt the wall as far as the stairs that descended from the city of David. Next to him was Nehemiah, the son of Azkub, Azbuk, the leader of the half of the district of Bethzur. He rebuilt the walls from the place across from the tombs of David's family, as far as the water reservoir and the house of the warriors. Next to him, the repairs were made by the group of the Levites working under the supervision of Raham, son of Bani. Then came Hezebiah, the leader of the district of Kaliah, or Kila, who supervised the building of the wall on behalf of his own district. Next down the line were his countrymen led by Benui, son of Henadad, the leader of the other half district of Kaliah. Next to them, Ezer, son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, 
repaired another section of the wall across from the ascent to the armory near the angle of the wall, in the wall. Next to him was Baruch, son of Zebai, who zealously repaired an additional section from the angle to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Merimoth, son of Uriah, and the grandson of Hezak rebuilt another section of wall extending from the front door of Eliashib's house to the end of the house. The next repairs were made by the priests of the surrounding region. After them, Benjamin and Heshub repaired the section across from their houses. And as Azariah, son of Maashiah, the grandson of Ananiah, repaired the section across from his house. Next was Banui, son of Henadad, who rebuilt another section of the wall at Azariah's house to the angle in the corner. Palal, son of Uriah, carried on the work from that point opposite the angle in the tower that projected up from the king's upper house beside the court and the guards. Next to him were Pedadiah, the son of Parash, with the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel, who repaired the wall as far as the point across from the water gate to the east and projecting the to the and the projecting tower. Then came the people of Tekoa, who repaired another section across from the great projecting tower and over the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired the wall. Each one repaired a section immediately across from his own house. Next, Zadok, son of Imri, also rebuilt the wall across from his own house. And beyond him, Shemaiah, son of Shekaniah, the gatekeeper of the east gate. Next, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah and Hanan. If you guys are looking for kids' names, there's some great ones here. Just the sixth son of Zalaf repaired another section, while Meshalem, son of Berechiah, rebuilt the wall across from where he lived. Malachi, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the wall, the wall as far as the housing of the temple servants and merchants across from the inspection gate. Then he continued as far as the upper room at the corner. And the other goldsmiths and merchants repaired the wall from the corner to the sheep gate. This is the word of the Lord. Whew. All right. This is week four of our Fixer Upper series where we've been talking about this building project that Nehemiah accomplished in about the same amount of time that a normal design show um, is on TV. Uh, because as we stated last week, the gracious hand of God was on Nehemiah. Uh, this is a work that had laid unfinished for 180 years, and Nehemiah comes and gets it done in 52 days because the hand of God was on him. Nehemiah said those words after riding the city and assessing its damages. He mapped out for us um, all of the windings through the rubble that he took uh, just before this, pointing out where, where things were so bad he couldn't even get his donkey through the rubble. And... Uh, in fact, uh, he shows this weird optimism right after kind of riding it, where he, he rides it and he comes in and, uh, and, and is optimistic about what comes next. Uh, and first he's brutally honest. He says, but now I said to them, you know very well the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then immediately turns to the solution. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. I love how he makes it sound so simple, right? Have you ever gone to somebody for advice and you're like, hey, my car's not running. They're like, well, did you put gas in it? And you're like, no, I didn't think to check the gas. Like, if you're like me and you run out of gas like once a month, you're like, of course, I always assume it's gas. Of course, I checked 
to gas. You know, when someone gives you advice and like their first three options are, are so obvious, you're almost frustrated you asked because you're like, you, didn't, you think I came to you before I even bothered to ask those things? So Nehemiah comes up and he's like, hey, everything is terrible. How about we put the wall back up? Can you imagine being the people like, duh, like we never thought about putting the wall back up. Like, but he does. He says it that, that blatantly. We're all in this huge mess. Have you thought about putting the wall back up? But Nehemiah convinces them because he explained to them that the grace of God was on them and that God had already provided for the work. He had given them his grace and his provision to do this amazing rebuilding. And so this week they actually dive into the work. And this chapter is actually almost uncomfortably factual and clinical. He's, it's just a matter of him going, and this person built this, and this person built this, and this person built this. And it's, it's kind of fun that God included these details. And we have a tendency to just kind of skip over them. But uh, God saw fit to these people's names went into the scripture because they engaged in the work of God. I think that's important. And it's one of the reasons I like to read it, even though I'm not a great reader and I butcher the names. I, you know, God saw fit to record these people's names in the text. And so I think it's important that we give them the due honor of reading their names. But it's almost like when you watch a design show, this chapter, and, and there's different people that did. Have you ever noticed every design show, if you ever watch them, there's like the, everyone's got a carpenter. Every team has like the carpenter and the designer. And some of them always have somebody that sews pillows. I don't know who that person is, but a lot of them even have those people where whenever they want a countertop made, they, they go off set and they, they, you know, talk to their countertop maker or their furniture person who always has furniture for them. And that's kind of what this one's like. It's like this person did this project and this person did that project and this person did that project. Nehemiah just kind of makes a list. At this point, it makes you wonder why it took this long, why it took 180 years when everybody just grabbed a section of wall and it threw up. I mean, in my house, this makes perfect sense because we have like a thousand kids. And, and it seems like when you're doing dinner chores, you know, you should be able to assign a task per kid and it should take about 30 seconds to get the work done. But usually it takes about 180 years. I don't know why it, like dinner chores are like that at our house, but our house is closer to Jerusalem. Like even though we have a lot of people and everybody just needs to do one small job, I think, I think 180 years is our running average. But like my kids, um, once they set their mind to, to things, this uh, group of people in Jerusalem are incredibly powerful. Um, and so what I want to spend my time focusing on is the nature of the wall that they build. Because I think if we're going to rebuild our nations and our churches and our families and, and our hearts, the two components of this wall that Nehemiah built is, uh, and, and where to use them are going to be important to us as we rebuild. In short... We have to build walls and we have to put up gates. And so what we want to talk about today are walls and gates. So let's start what I mean by this. Walls are used for defense. They're used to keep things out. You want a good thick wall that can't be knocked down. You want a tall wall that can't be climbed over because a wall is used for stopping traffic. It's used for holding things out or holding things in. You put up a wall to clearly define exactly how far someone else is allowed to come and precisely where they're expected to stop. Walls are not intended to be inviting. They're intended to be intimidating and foreboding. 
Gates, on the other hand, are designed for traffic. They close, of course, because it wouldn't make sense to have a wall if you don't have gates that can close. But the thing that truly differentiates between a gate and a wall is that the gate can be opened. Gates can let things in. Gates can be flung wide to be inviting in a way that a wall never can be. So what happens in this chapter of the book of Nehemiah is that I believe we, like Nehemiah, have to decide if we're going to rebuild our proverbial cities is what do we let in and what do we block out? Where do we put up a wall and where do we open a gate? This is obviously always a national question. I grew up in the 70s and 80s where a little literal wall separated ideologies until it came down in 89. And now in our question, we wrestle with where we need walls and where do we put gates? And I have to say, as I considered this all week, that this is a, uh, the majority of what defines church history. There have been branches of the church throughout history that have been mostly wall, mostly defined by what they hold out, mostly defined by what they resist, letting virtually nothing in. There's also been times in church history when the church was mostly gate letting all manner of things into the heart of the church, refusing to block anything out, leaving virtually no borders between the church and the wider culture. But most of the tension in church history, most of the division, most of the problems we've had within the church have been about this question of what do we let in and what do we keep out? It's how we've defined most of our denominations. It's, it's what we split over. What do we let in? what do we keep out? Where do we put a gate and where do we put a wall? And believe it or not, this decision on where to build a wall that blocks things out and where to put a gate that allows things in is supposed to be part of the Christian experience. This was part of Jerusalem, or Israel, actually, part of the Jewish culture long before it was a Christian thing. This idea of what do we block out and what do we keep in and how do we make these decisions? See, we like to think that where to put walls and gates is black and white. It's just uh, defined by the Scripture. We just do it wherever the Scripture says, right? Have you ever heard someone say that they go to church because their church just preaches the Word of God? Anybody ever heard somebody say that? I like this church because they just preach the Word of God. I've said it. It's not, a, it's not a bad thing. It's just not a real thing. If you have an audio Bible, your audio Bible just preaches the Word of God. But if you're listening to a preacher... He's interpreting. Interpretation has to happen. Nobody just preaches the Word of God. I wish we did. What I just did, that thing with fumbling over the words, that's just preaching the Word of God. But anytime we have to talk about it, anytime we have to apply it, some interpretation has to, has to happen. Think of it this way. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mark twelve thirty one. Super simple verse. Black and white, Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's in the imperative form, so the only thing you have to do to apply it is obey it. Like, very little theology. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we have to ask the question, who's your neighbor? Is it your next door neighbor? Is it everybody you brush shoulders with on a given day? Or is a neighbor everyone on the, on, on the planet? Is a neighbor everybody else? People from different countries and different races and different political affiliations, are they your neighbor. 
Because if it's your next door neighbor, that demands a certain type of, of lifestyle, right? You might not even have to change that much to love your next door neighbor as yourself. What happens if the neighbor you're supposed to love as yourself is somebody working in a sweatshop in, in another part of the world and, and it means you have to change the things you spend your money on and the systems you invest in? Then does loving your neighbor look different? You have to decide who's your neighbor. If I, if I don't know who my neighbor is, how do I obey this verse? And if you do sort out who your neighbor is, you have to figure out what it means to love yourself. But if you don't love yourself very much, then what, what, if you, what if you're abusive to yourself? Does that mean you're allowed to be abusive to others? What if you have terrible self-talk? What if you walk around saying, I'm stupid? Does that mean you're allowed to tell other people they're stupid because you just have to love them the way you love yourself? You have to sort out what it means to love yourself in order to obey this verse. And if we sort out who our neighbor is and what it means to love ourselves, now we have to figure out what it means to, to agape, love somebody, because this is the kind of love that God generally uses when he speaks for his love for us. And we know he sent his son to die for us. So what does it mean to agape, love someone else? If we figure out who our neighbor is and if we figure out what it means to love ourselves, and we figure out what agape is and how to do it, now we can obey this simple verse, love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe the simplest verse in Scripture. And it takes a lot of interpreting just to apply this one verse. And if a verse as simple as love your neighbor as yourself takes that much interpretation... There is no church on the planet that's just teaching the Word of God. And this gets a little scary, right? Like I can tell by the quiet that it's a little scary when we talk about what it means to... that we can't really take the Bible and just apply it. We have to interpret it. We have to figure out what it means because we get stuff wrong all the time. And what if we get this wrong? That is so big. And these are all good questions, but here's the thing. The process of building walls and gates, this process of making choices about what gets in and what gets held out is what it means to live according to Scripture. If we go all the way back to the very beginning of Scripture, before Israel had even entered the Promised Land, like literally the beginning of Scripture, Moses has brought down the tablets from the mountain. He's, he's been given the Torah and recorded it. He's told Israel about their festivals and, and their legal system and their, their, their worship system and, and they've been given all of this. Just before they go into the promised land, they've had 40 years with this. And back then, religion was really vague. It was universal. There was no such thing as an atheist, but it was really vague. You had these vague gods that you believed controlled everything and and in a weird way, you would make sacrifices and things to appease them, hoping to get a good crop or a healing or a blessing. But you really had no idea what they wanted. You just knew they were fickle and you had to stay on their good side. And so when God comes and he gives the Torah to Moses, it was this revolutionary moment where the people knew what God wanted. They'd never known that before. They'd never known that that God had a certain way he wanted us to live. And so God outlines it clearly. There's no ambiguity. All you have to do is what God says. No more guessing. Just do what the Torah tells you to do. Let me ask you, each of us have a Bible. If we don't, you can download one real quick on your 
on your phone. So you have the Scripture at your disposal. Has anybody ever had a hard time making a decision? Ever? Show of hands. Yeah. Universal, right? Just go to the Bible. What's the Bible tell you to do? It's tough, right? Like we, we, it's easy on some things. Should I cheat on my wife? Should I not cheat on my wife? Uh, yeah, the Bible answers some questions. Very black and white. Should I buy this house? Should I not buy this house? Should I take this job? Should I not take this job? This person asked me to, asked me to do him a favor, and I don't really want to. Am I bound to that or am I not bound to that? There's a lot of ambiguity that, that takes interpretation. So even with the Word of God at our fingertips, we struggle sometimes with what that means. And the earliest followers of God were no different. Listen to this. This is Moses speaking after 40 years in the wilderness of living with the Torah, living with the Scripture. Moses says, but, oh, and so here's what Moses is, is doing too much. He can't, he can no longer handle all the people coming to their questions and going, hey, what does the Torah say about this? Hey, how do I apply the Torah here? Hey, what do I do with this? With this situation, so Moses assigns other people to help him. He says, you will help me, you know, judge amongst the people. He says, but you are such a heavy load to carry. He's talking to the people of Israel. How can I deal with all your problems and bickering? Choose some well-respected men from each tribe who are known for their wisdom and understanding, and I will appoint them as your leaders. Then he responded, your plan is a... Uh, then you responded, so he's, he's reminding them of when they did this. Then you responded, your plan is a good one. So I took the wise and respected men you had selected from the tribes and appointed them to serve as judges and officials over you. Some were responsible for a thousand people, some for a hundred, some for fifty, some for ten. At that time, I instructed the judges, you must hear the cases of your fellow Israelites and the foreigners living among you. Be perfectly fair in your decision and impartial in your judgments. Here are the cases of those who are poor as well as those who are rich. Don't be afraid of anyone's anger for the decisions you make is God's decision. Bring any cases that are too difficult to me and I will handle them. Can you imagine that pressure? The decision you make in this moment is God's decision. That is huge. So let me explain what's happening here. Moses has just instructed, has just given the written word of God for the first time, the will of God for human life, written on scrolls. And still, it took someone to interpret it, to interpret those words so that they could be applied in real everyday life. And then Moses adds this phrase, for the decision you make is God's decision. The Mishnah, which is the, some Jewish commentaries on the scripture that started about 500 years before Jesus was born and went about 300 years after Jesus' birth, uh, was this commentary on the Old Testament. And, and they took this verse, this, this verse of Moses that said, the decisions you make are God's decisions, and about a dozen other passages of scripture, and they formalized what that meant, how that worked. It's a little convoluted and mystical the way they wrote it, but they believe there was three levels of kind of authority. The, the Pharisee or rabbi, the person who is kind of in the mix and talking to people and judging amongst the people, and his decisions were kind of interpreted and ultimately ratified or vetoed by the Sanhedrin, which was the leadership of all of Israel. 
And they believed that their decisions were ratified and, or ultimately vetoed by the, what they called the court of heaven, which is ultimately God. And so they believe when you make a decision on earth, it affects the decision of God. What's most interesting is what they called this process of, of judging, this process of deciding what gets in and what gets pushed out, deciding how you apply the scripture to your everyday life. And the Mishnah called it Asar and Chetir. Asar and Chetir. And every rabbi was expected to do this. And those, those Hebrew words, Asar and Chetir, are translated in English, binding and loosing. Rabbis were expected to decide on a daily basis what should be bound by the Torah. If a wall should be put up against something, and what should be loosed by the Torah, if it should be allowed, if it should be opened up like a gate. In Jesus' day, there were two major schools of thought, kind of a conservative and a liberal camp. And they were named after two famous rabbis, Shammai and Chalel. And there was a famous saying uh, that Shammai binds where Chalel loosens. And then along comes Jesus one day. And he says to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. According to Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, Jesus was quoting a, a well-known rabbinical saying of the time that rabbis said all the time to their disciples, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in the courts of heaven, according to the Mishnah. And whatever you loose on earth is loosed in the courts of heaven, according to the Mishnah. So imagine these Jewish leaders when they watch Jesus sit down with fishermen, tax collectors, and common everyday people and go, you have the power to put up gates and put up walls. You have the power to make decisions about what gets in and what gets out, to bind and to loose. To a rabbi, this was withheld to, to the elite, those who had been trained, those who had been raised to do this, those who have gone through extensive schooling and ex extensive work. And Jesus sits down with everyday people, common people, and said, you have the power to make these decisions. For thousands and thousands of years, the people of God gather around the word of God and we've joined this ancient process of building walls to keep some things out and opening gates to let other things in. And I believe the first step to rebuilding our nations, our churches, and our families, and our hearts is to engage in this process of actively and prayerfully deciding what we should allow and what we should forbid, what we should bind, and what we should loose. But how, right? That's the big question. I mean, the church has done this forever, and all we've really managed to do with it is fight and split and over what should be bound and what should be loose. So how do we do better? I'd love to draw some wisdom from our text this morning. And the first thing is to consider that Nehemiah built the wall on previous foundations. He didn't throw up a new wall. He didn't build a brand new wall. He followed the original guidelines of the wall. 
based on the form of the language, experts are fairly confident that Nehemiah put each gate back where it originally was. In fact, when he rode the city the first night, uh, he only made it about a third of the way around the city, but the gates that he explains as he rides in chapter 2 fit the gates that he rebuilds in, in chapter 3. We don't know this for sure, obviously, because the book of Nehemiah is the very first book where we actually get a picture of, of where all the gates went. It's the first kind of explanation of this. We don't really have a solid record. Nehemiah is our record of which gates were in Jerusalem and what they were named and how they fit in. But what I love about Nehemiah is that he didn't start from scratch. There's no chance the wall was exactly the same, stone for stone. Obviously, it had some differences, but he followed the ancient pattern. And this is where the tension comes in. We're invited by Jesus to bind and to loose, to make these decisions, to decide where walls are and where gates are. This is a decision that used to be reserved for the educated and the elite But now we're invited to do it. But it doesn't mean we get to put them wherever we want. It doesn't mean we get to just throw up walls and gates wherever we want. We follow an ancient pattern. We don't just choose for ourselves. We have the Scripture. We have a pattern to follow. We're expected to build walls and open gates, but only where they're firmly rooted in the Scriptures. And I'm not talking about every wall and gate that previous generations said were supposed to be there necessarily or every, uh, you know, everything that we've been taught. But what the Word of God says, we gather around the Word of God and submerge ourselves in it and trust its foundations. When it says a wall goes here, we trust that. We don't look for excuses to put a gate where there used to be a wall. We don't, we don't say... But that doesn't apply anymore. That doesn't work anymore. If the Scripture says there's supposed to be a wall, we put a wall. And when the Bible says there's supposed to be an open gate, we don't wall over it, deciding it'd be better if we just block that out, if we just block those people out, if we just shut this part. It's too dangerous. We don't wall over where there was a gate. We trust the Word of God to outline for us how and where to build. So the first thing about walls and gates that I'd love to pick up from Nehemiah is that we don't just go blind into it. We follow the ancient blueprint. We follow the ancient building pattern. But the second thing I'd love to submit from the text this morning is that we never build walls and gates alone. One of the core tenets of the Reformation was that the Word of God should be put in the the spoken language of the people, that we should all have access to the scripture. And that mixed with the advent of the printing press meant that more and more people got to access the word of God. And I tend to think that's a good thing, but it's definitely a new thing. This is only about 500 years old in the grand scheme of 3,500 years of scripture. In fact, as more and more people got access to the scripture, it still didn't increase uh, actual time spent in scripture because it wasn't Europe didn't have 50% literacy until the 1800s. So even though people could go to the scripture and the scripture could be read to them in their own language, they still didn't read it alone very often because most of them couldn't read. 
The same groups of people who could read the scripture after it was put in their own language were the same groups that could have read it in the old language. Not much changed until 150, maybe 200 years ago. Very recently in the grand scheme of things. For the majority of history, the people of God read the the word of God together in community. This is one of the topics we've been wrestling with in our men's Bible study over the past couple weeks. Millions and millions of people running around with millions and millions of Bibles coming up with millions and millions of interpretations. In the grand scheme of things, this is a brand new situation. Before this era, people gathered together in community to study and read the Word of God. In the Old Testament, the people gathered to hear the Word of God read to them from scrolls. In the early church, congregations gathered to hear letters read to them on scrolls. And I tend to favor everybody having a Bible, reading the Bible for yourself. Because if the medieval church taught us anything, it's that the alternative definitely has its downfalls. But when we gather together around the Word of God, and we discover together in in the tension of debate and disagreement and, and questioning where it's safe to put up walls and where we need to put up gates, we find security. The problem is we tend to decide where we want walls and gates and we find a community that wants walls and gates in all the same exact places and we, and we lock in so that we don't have to wrestle with the Word of God together. But that's not real binding and loosing. Jesus gathered His disciples together and, and He told them that they had this responsibility. They had them, all of them. They had to figure this out. What to bind, what to loose, what to allow, what to release This has to be done in community. Nehemiah took the time to list a lot of names in this chapter. This person contributed and that person contributed and this person over here built this and that person over there hung this gate and this person, this is not something we ever do alone. Our vision statement here at Open Table starts with the words, Open Table Community Church is a community organized by and around the Word of God. We don't pretend to have the truth. We don't pretend to be right where all other churches are wrong. But we do attempt to gather together around the Word of God and allow that activity to shape our walls and gates. As Nehemiah built the walls and hung the gates, he followed the ancient paths, putting the walls where they had been tested, where they had a solid foundation, stable. He built in community recognizing that you never build well alone. Any interpretation you come up with from Scripture that you come up with all by yourself is suspect at best. We figure this out in community. We do this in community. So how do we respond to this? Believe it or not, after that front door blew out of that house 25 years ago, over 25 years ago, we actually went on to build many more houses for those builders, for that family. And we never made that mistake again. We took exterior doors very seriously after that. Working gates and secure walls are very important. Not just to keep people out, but to invite them in. See, when you start talking about things that 
should be allowed and things that should be forbidden, most of us start making a list. Do's and don'ts. We forbid these things. You don't, you're not allowed to do those things. Drinking, smoking, smoking, cussing, gambling, dancing, whatever. We come up with our do's and don'ts list. This is forbidden. This is allowed. And on and on and on. But when they ask Jesus that question, which one of the laws is most important? Which one of the do's and don'ts? Which, which one of the walls and gates is most important? He said it's simple. Love God and love people. In fact, he said this, is, this simple formula wraps up all the walls and gates of the Torah. And yeah, there's plenty of tension in that statement. Enough tension to keep us busy our entire lives. What does it mean to love God and what does it mean to love people? Where do we bind? Where do we loose? How do we make our lists of do's and don'ts? But we have to let that simple statement of Jesus always guide us. What does it mean to love God and love people? He said that sums up the entire process. But the real way that I'd love to respond to this message today is by asking you to do it. Engage the process. Look at the walls in your life and and don't let society tell you where they should be. Don't let politics tell you where they should be. And by God, don't just let the walls lay there piled up in rubble. Dig in and engage. Ask yourself if the things in your life are drawing you closer to God and people. Are they driving you away from God and people? Ask yourself if all the stuff you're reading and listening to and watching is helping you to love God and people. Don't leave your walls down just because they've been down for a while now. Wake up and do the work. One of my favorite parts of this chapter, and honestly, one of my favorite parts of this entire book, it's something that probably flashes back through my head more than than most parts of Scripture, is when it says, and above the horse gate, the priest repaired the wall. Each one repaired the section immediately across from his own house. The chapter goes on to list all kinds of people who started with the wall immediately across from his own house. That's where it has to start. We can't all fix the world. We can vote. We can get involved in the process and all this is good. But please don't neglect the wall across from your own house. And this is, this is very real to me. Over quarantine, I got to look at several areas where the walls in my own family were down and were terribly vulnerable. And we've been working hard to rebuild our own walls. And part of that is saying we were letting this thing in. We were letting things just flood over the wall. We can't do that anymore. We have to, we have to put a wall here. We weren't allowing this, 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 this influence in anymore. We had, we had somehow gotten away from it. We need to open that gate and let some of this stuff in. We need to, we, we need to put defenses back up and, and open the flow of traffic in other areas. And it, and it takes work. And we do have to go to the scripture. We do have to go to the original foundation and go, where should my walls be? 
Where should they be? Where do I put them? Where do I open up gates and where do I put up defenses? So that's my prayer for us today, is to, is to do it. Do the work. Engage in the process of rebuilding your walls. Look at your life and ask the hard questions. Do you really want a gate there? Do you really want that stuff coming in? Do you really want a wall there? Do you really want to block out that from your life? Bind and loose. They've done it since Moses introduced the scripture. Jesus gave us the power to do it. But we have to do the work. Our tendency is to sit like Jerusalem in, in a pile of rubble and just assume that what we've been handed is, is the right thing. What we've been given in Jerusalem was 180 years they've been living like this and they hadn't really taken the time to, to focus on the wall. And so my prayer for us today is that we would do the work. We wouldn't accept what we've been handed. We, 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 would, we would spend time in the scripture together and we would go, is this where my walls should be? Unforgiveness, we have to loose that. We have to let that go. Hatred, let that go. That's poison. Loose that. Hope, open the gates to hope. Open the gates to joy. Let that in. In my life recently, social media, I had to close the gate on that. I don't know if I'll open it again. It's been a good week. Getting those voices out of my head. Bigotry and prejudice. Put up a wall against that. You don't need that in your life. Open your door to people. All people. Nehemiah does a wonder. He does. He he does an amazing work. But he didn't do it alone. We cannot see our world turned around if we're just passengers on this big blue ball. We have to rise up and be proactive. We have to be part of the fix. We have to look at our walls and and get to work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that we have a, a blueprint We have a foundation to follow as we build. But Israel had a foundation to follow and they had a blueprint and they still let their walls down for 180 years. Inspire us to take this seriously. Inspire us to look at the wall across from our own house and do the work. Help us to examine the things that we're letting in And decide if that's where a gate really should be. Help us to examine the things and people that we're blocking out and ask ourselves if if we really want a wall there. If that's really where a wall... Would Jesus have put a wall there? We thank you so much that you've given us your word that we're not building blind. We thank you that you've given us people to build with. Sometimes that makes the, the work tougher because we all know it's more work when we do it together because other people might want to build differently than us and we have to live in that tension and it's so easy just to go, I'll do it myself. 
But we know you've given us a people for a reason. And so this week, I pray you'd help us to engage in this process together. Help us to engage one another and and ask hard questions and, and dig in and confess and repent and do it together. We thank you so much that you... You gave us this incredible responsibility and freedom to to go to your scripture. We thank you that you crossed this huge barrier from, from heaven to earth to come down to us and open this door to us to be part of this ancient, ancient tradition of gathering around your word, bind and loose, put up gates, put up walls. I pray this morning you give us the grace to actually do it, to take the work seriously. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.